Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. Human Experiences in Session. My name is Xavier Katana. We've got an amazing program planned for you guys today. So sit back, have a drink, and enjoy this conversation. My guest for today is Dr. Bernardo Castrup. Bernardo Castrup is a scientist, philosopher, and author whose work looks at the nature of our reality. He has PhDs in both philosophy and computer engineering and has worked in such prestigious places as the European Organization for Nuclear Research and Phillips Research Laboratories. Bernardo has authored a number of books, including The Idea of the World, a multi- multidisciplinary argument for the mental nature of reality. His work has also been published in Scientific American Magazine. He has penned a number of academic papers on topics ranging from self-transcendence to brain function impairment. Bernardo, it's a pleasure. Welcome to HXP. Thanks for having me. Pleasure is mine. Bernardo, thank you so much for being here. I know that we had a little bit of a miscommunication on the times. It's very late for you where you are, but I'm, I'm really glad that you're here with us today. Um, a lot of really interesting material that you're, you're talking about, but please give us a small introduction to how you got to, this, to studying this information and you know, how, how you got to this point. Well, I, my whole life since, since the very early times uh, has been influenced by, by science. Uh, I've worked at CERN in my youth, as you, as you mentioned, in my early 20s. Um, I have been, in those early days, a sort of materialist by default, because I was just in that environment my whole life, and I never really questioned that, uh, that view of the world, that there is only matter and mind is some, it's sort of an epiphenomenon of certain arrangements of matter, a secondary thing. Um, and then at some point, it was in early 21st century, very early, uh, like, I don't know, 19, 18 uh, years ago, um, I read a paper by David Chalmers in which he talks about the hard problem of consciousness. And basically what he says is, you know, there is nothing about the properties of matter in terms of which we could deduce how it feels to see a color, how it feels to have a bellyache, how it feels to fall in love. There is this arbitrary uh, uh, abyss between the domain of matter and the domain of mind. He mm-hmm. called it the hard problem of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And that sunk in. That I, I really got that and I realized that uh, our mainstream view of the nature of reality is untenable. And I started looking for a more reasonable uh, alternative. So, I mean, it was a question of, of science. I mean, how do you how do you determine the nature of reality? It seems like such a big task. Yeah, it's, it's, it's much more difficult than science. Science is about the behavior of nature. When you do an experiment, you are basically asking nature how it behaves under certain conditions, and nature replies by manifesting that behavior. So by doing these experiments and, and creating predictive models about how nature behaves, you can develop technology and you don't need to know anything about how things really are in and of themselves apart from their behavior. So science doesn't need philosophy and it has this this way of answering questions in a definite way. You know, if you say that the behavior of nature will be A instead of B and you do an experiment and it turns out to be B, then the question is settled. Now, the nature of reality is something that you cannot ask directly to nature. Um, it's, it's an inferential process. Uh, uh, you try to guide your guesses about what nature really is mm-hmm. based on internal logical consistency. In other words, you can't contradict yourself in your argument based on parsimony. You don't want to postulate all kinds of entities and things that can't be proven. So you want a parsimonious theory of nature. Uh, and it has to be empirically adequate. You cannot have a theory about uh, the essence of nature that contradicts nature's behavior as verified through science. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a more difficult enterprise. 
So with science, you're using numbers and math and doing experiments based on the scientific method. And with philosophy, what are you doing exactly? Simplify it for me. Philosophy is a way to think carefully uh, uh, about the hypothesis you put forward. Make sure that you're not contradicting yourself in your argument, making sure that your argument is clean. And ultimately, what decides what the best philosophical hypothesis is, uh, are those three criteria just mentioned. You have to be logically consistent, parsimonious, and empirically adequate. Hmm. Okay. So one of the main points that you mention in your work is what you call the defense of what in the West is called the philosophy of idealism. What is the philosophy of idealism and how... How does it relate to reality, the vibrations of a membrane of, of pure consciousness? To help you understand what idealism is. Yeah. Idealism is, is, the idea, is the notion that all there is is mind, that all nature is mental. That doesn't mean that all there is is your personal mind alone. That's not what is being said. Uh, according to my uh, favorite formulation of idealism, the one I have been articulating for a while, There is a world outside beyond ourselves, but that world is mental. It is uh, uh, of the same nature, of the same essence as our conscious inner lives. Uh, And it is the interaction of that mental world outside, those transpersonal processes and our personal processes when we observe the world uh, that uh, that create uh, the images on the screen of perception that we call the physical world with colors, with shapes, with uh, particular behaviors that can be modeled and predicted by science and so on. And the the advantage of this this way of regarding the world is that uh, unlike mainstream physicalism or materialism, let's call it uh, materialism, you don't have this fundamental transition between non-mind, in other words, matter, and mind. This, This transition uh, is arbitrary, and, and that's the whole difficulty of explaining consciousness. Um, idealism doesn't suffer from that problem because it says, well, there is really a world out there, but it's mental, and it interacts with my personal mentality upon observation and creates these new mental qualities uh, like color, shape, melody, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, flavors, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And there is no fundamental problem in that because you know, that certain mental processes impact and influence other types of mental processes is trivial. Our thoughts influence our emotions all the time. They may even create emotions. And our emotions, in turn, influence our thoughts as well. They may even lead us to down certain paths of thinking. So for idealism, this is what creates perception, is an interaction between my personal mental processes and transpersonal mental processes out there. That interaction creates the qualities of perception, in other words, the physical world itself. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, Bernardo, do you, do you think it's possible to over-philosophize things in, in, in their relationship to your life? I mean, is it possible to sort of talk in circles in a sort of armchair philosopher way? Totally. I mean, there there have been many instances of this in history, and I think you don't need to look around very hard to, to find instances of that. Um, I personally think that uh, materialism is, is a sort of over-philosophizing uh, phenomenon because it postulates this, 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 this kind of substance uh, uh, that's supposed to be non-mental, even though our entire lives, our entire reality is purely mental. We don't have access to anything beyond the mental. Um, but you can over-philosophize in terms of ethics, uh, you can over-philosophize in terms of metaphysics, uh, you can go down certain rabbit holes that if you are not careful, you get lost in and you never emerge back. Hmm. Yeah, so you know, in 2015 you wrote a blog post about how your ideas are sometimes conflated with the notion of panpsychism. Let's, let's define panpsychism for our audience. What is the meaning of panpsychism? I will oversimplify it because there are many versions of panpsychism and, and it would take half an hour to, to go sure. through them. So if there are philosophers listening to this, uh, forgive me for not being <laughs> extremely accurate and precise. But in general terms, panpsychism is the idea that all matter is conscious. 
that even uh, strictly speaking, this is called uh, micropanpsychism or, or um, well, never mind. Uh, the idea is that everything that is material mm-hmm. has consciousness at a fundamental level. In other words, consciousness is not magically created by certain arrangements of matter in your brain. Consciousness is always there as an intrinsic fundamental property of all matter. So panpsychism would say consciousness is in all matter. Um, I would describe idealism as stating all matter is in consciousness. In other words, the other way around, I think matter, what, what we refer to when we use the word matter is a particular category of experience. In other words, perceptual experience. There are other categories like thoughts, imagination, feelings, emotions, and so forth, intuitions. Uh, one particular category uh, of uh, conscious processes is what we call perception. So matter is in consciousness, in my view, although not in your personal consciousness alone, a kind of universal transpersonal consciousness. Hmm. Uh, panpsychists, instead, they would say that the structure of matter, you know, subatomic particles, atoms, molecules, tissues, and so forth, hmm. that structure we see in matter is the structure of consciousness itself. So for a panpsychist, Uh, my mind emerges through the combination of all kinds of tiny little minds in the subatomic particles, atoms and molecules that constitute my brain. Mm -hmm. Personally, I think this is uh, as bad a philosophy as uh, as materialism because you have another very hard problem or impossible problem, which is to explain how uh, 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 independent minds of different little independent subatomic particles combine to constitute this unitary conscious point of view that I call myself. I think that problem is insoluble, and idealism does not suffer from that problem. Okay, let's define materialism as well, since we brought that up a couple times now. Please. Materialism is the idea that everything that truly exists at a fundamental level is matter. Uh Matter is not conscious in and of itself, only certain arrangements of matter in the form of nervous systems, biological nervous systems are conscious, and that consciousness itself emerges from these certain arrangements of matter. That is materialism. Okay, okay. So now let's get into the realm of consciousness. How how do we define what something that has consciousness is? Because, I mean, certainly something in the animal kingdom and that self-actualization of awareness makes, does that make me more conscious than, say, um, a monkey or a whale or a zebra? Yeah. Depends on what you mean. There are several definitions of consciousness. When I use the word consciousness, I, I mean what philosophers call phenomenal consciousness. And that's the very, the most simple, the simplest uh, type uh, or the simplest definition. You are phenomenally conscious if there is something it is like to be you. If being you feels like something, anything, then you are phenomenally conscious. In other words, in this definition, consciousness is equated with experience. If you experience something, then you're conscious. But it doesn't require higher level mental functions like cognition or or conscious metacognition and all those other things. Um, But there are other definitions. One that's very popular still in psychology today, uh, one definition of consciousness, uh, requires that uh, not only you must have experience, in addition to that, you must know that you have experiences. Mm-hmm. In other words, you must be able to reflect on your own experiences upon introspection. And they define it that way because you need this ability to reflect in order to report to someone else or even to yourself that you are having an experience. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're like my cat. You're experiencing, but you're not telling yourself, oh, I'm experiencing this now. I'm experiencing the smell of this food. I'm experiencing the sun on my fur. Animals would probably not have that. Uh, But I use consciousness as a synonym of simple, raw experience. So, for example, if I go and touch a hot stove and get burned, then I have have this awareness that, you know, because I went and touched this this stove, now I've, I've been burned. That actualization of that experience and being able to be aware of that makes me conscious more than something else? That would make you metaconscious. So not only do you have the experience of the pain 
of the burn, uh, you also know that you have the experience of the burn. Uh, and that brings consciousness to another consciousness to another level. Uh, in this case, consciousness is kind of a turning in upon itself in order to examine its own experiential contents. And then you might say, well, that makes me more conscious than uh, an animal that gets burned, feels the pain, but doesn't think about that in terms of a subject that, uh, that is undergoing that experience. The animal doesn't think of itself in that, in that way. And then you might say, well, it's less conscious. It's, it, it's, it's up to, for, for choice what one means by more or less conscious. Hmm. Okay, so you know, when, we're, when we're establishing different narratives of, of you know, these sort of fundamental questions of, of reality, like you know, what am I, what are we, what is the nature of things? Um, you know, is there a God? I mean, these these big questions. How do we start to look at those questions in a in a rational way? I think this is very personal. I think uh, every person has uh, a different motivation, a sort of different angle of attack to approach these questions. Uh, for me, these questions have been very fundamental since since an early age. Uh, what is the nature of life? It's a very strange condition, isn't it? I mean, we are temporary organisms that are constantly fighting the second law of thermodynamics, which says that uh, there should be always increasing disorder. And we construct order through metabolism. It's a very strange condition. And what happens after we die? What, what, are, what guides our ethics? What are the, the values that, that guide our ethics? And are they arbitrary or not? Is there a metaphysical basis for all that? Mm. Uh, I think different people will be interested in different ones amongst these questions and approach it in a different way. For me, the very meaning of life is to ask myself these questions and attempt answers. So if, if consciousness is something that is independent of the brain, then then is it... I mean, what happens at the moment of death? Does consciousness move forward or, you know, I guess no one can really say, right? Yeah, well, um, I am not a dualist. I don't think there is consciousness and then there is this material brain that interacts with consciousness in some way. I think that's not parsimonious. I think what the brain is, is uh, the image, the outer appearance of a certain configuration of consciousness, of certain conscious processes. When they are observed from the outside, they look like a brain or a body. If you look at me, you see a body, but from the inside, it's my conscious inner life. I think my conscious inner life presents itself to you in the form that we call uh, a living biological body. Um, and I think uh, this process that my body is an image of is a sort of a, a split-off complex or, or a... a split off personality, if you will, an alter is the technical term, of universal consciousness. I think life is the image of a kind of universal dissociation in consciousness, in which consciousness seemingly splits itself off in different co-conscious uh, centers of experience, so to say. I think that's what life, life is. It's the appearance of that process. And if that is correct, then death is the end of the dissociation. It's the reintegration of your inner life with the inner life of the universe as a whole. I think my best guess uh, is that uh, this is what happens. Hmm. Okay. I mean, you mentioned dreams a bit in your work. And, um, you know, I, I find it interesting that we live this, this life in dreams and, you know, we, we wake up and it, it feels so real. Right. So, I mean, what's to say that this isn't just a dream? We're in this sort of dream reality that feels very real. And when we die, we just sort of wake up. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great analogy. I mean, dreams um, compellingly demonstrate two things. One, it demonstrates that mind alone is perfectly capable of creating this entire scenario that we find ourselves in. Mm. It, it can alone create everything, sense of touch, sense of uh, 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 vision, uh, everything. Mm -hmm. And I have had a few lucid dreams in my life in which I asked myself, I knew I was dreaming, uh, and I asked myself, is there any way I can tell simply by looking at this dream world around me 
that, that it is a dream? Is, it, is the resolution worse? Uh, is the concreteness not as high? And, and every time the answer was no, it, it's perfectly con- convincible. It's very compelling. I couldn't tell a difference. I only knew that I was dreaming because of continuity. I knew that I had gone to bed and I knew that the world I was in was not part of the world where I normally live. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing that dreams compellingly demonstrate. The other thing that dreams demonstrate is that mind can dissociate itself in two parts, an experiencer and a world that is experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you're dreaming, it's your mind that's generating the entire scenario of the dream. Sure. You know, the mountains, the sun, the streets, the other people, the buildings, everything is generated by your mind. Wow. But you are dissociated from it in the sense that you don't recognize that part of your mind as your own. You think it's something external that is creating that environment right. or even a physical world out there. So mind is perfectly capable of not only creating this entire scenario, but also of convincing itself that it is not doing it, that it's something outside. Mm -hmm. And of course, it immediately raises the question, might this be what's happening right now? I think uh, as an analogy, yes, this is what's happening right now. I certainly don't think it is literally what's happening right now. If this is a dream, then it's it's like a dream of the kind we have at night, Mm -hmm. but it's a whole other uh, order of dreaming. Hmm. Okay, I mean, yeah, because... You know, people have are having their own interpretations of of their experiences, and it all kind of coagulates together, right? I mean, it it's moving in this this weaving thread of of collective experience. So, you know, how how do we individuate those those experiences and the the consciousness of someone else and mine? I mean, how could all of that be connected? Yeah, because. This dream is not yours as Xavier. Uh, Xavier is, uh, in my view, a dissociated complex of of a broader consciousness. And it's that broader consciousness that is uh, synchronizing the dream. Um, As an idealist, I'm not saying that there isn't anything out there that we all seem to inhabit. Something beyond ourselves that we cannot control with our volition just by imagining it to be different and creating this environment where we are all inside. But I think that this thing out there is mental as well. It's fundamentally experiential. And we are immersed in this common ocean of experience, if you will, all interacting with this same common environment of experiences around us, which presents itself to us as the physical world. Um, And because we are all inserted in this experiential milieu, this experiential environment that surrounds all of us, uh, that's the reason why we think we share the same world. And I think we do share the same world, but it's a mental world. Uh, Physicality is just the appearance of that world uh, upon observation. Um, And if you allow me to to, to pursue this a little further... Uh, there has been very interesting. There is one paper from 1994, uh, a study of the dream life of patients with dissociative identity disorder. It used to be called multiple personality disorder, in which uh, the psyche or the mind of a person splits off into these multiple disjoint identities, mm-hmm. which claim to have different ages, sometimes different sexes, you know, different. Uh, histories and so on Mm -hmm. and um, the the researcher wanted to investigate whether these people dreamed differently and it turns out that for about a quarter uh, that's what they could demonstrate for about a quarter of the subjects of the study um, they would have a dream in which different alters of that person the different personalities would experience the same dream from a different point of view So if in the dream you were talking to somebody else, upon waking, I would say, well, I dreamed about talking to a girl this age. And then when the other alter assumes control of the person in waking life, the other alter would relate the same dream, but but from the other perspective, from the perspective of the girl uh, uh, that the the previous one was talking to. Mm -hmm. There is an example in which six alters were involved, each one of them experiencing the same dream, the same environment, very consistent from different points of view. Uh, And what this shows, again, sort of compellingly, if you believe this, 
is that uh, one mind can dissociate into multiple concurrently conscious uh, centers of experience that share the same dream. And yeah, I don't need to pursue this further for you to see where I'm going yeah. with this. Yeah. I mean, it's such a puzzle because it seems like we have such little information about how the mind works. I mean, the human visual spectrum is, our ability to see in the visual spectrum is like 7%. So if we're not, if we're not perceiving everything that's there, how can we, how can we determine what the larger picture is? How, how, is there a place where we will ever be able to do that? That's what I'm trying to say. No, I don't think so. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think the best we can hope for is to have a theory of nature that is closer to the truth. Can we um, really get to the truth? Probably not. Um, because we see we are, we are inserted within the environment that we want to make sense of. We are not contemplating it from the outside. We are living beings in this universe. It's very difficult to explain the universe from an internal perspective for the same reason that it's very difficult to explain anything unless you can step out of it and contemplate it objectively. So I don't think we will ever get to the ultimate truth, at least not in life. Uh, mm -hmm. But I do think we know enough today to have a much better theory of nature, a much better metaphysics, if you will, than the metaphysics of materialism. I think the metaphysics of materialism is glaringly untenable, inelegant, um, non-parsimonious, and we certainly can do a lot better than that already now. And I think that's all we can hope for, but it's already an enormous step because the implications of idealism uh, contrasted with materialism um, can lead us to live life in a very, very different way than we do today. Okay, okay. So let's get into that. Let's get into how this can change or, or affect the way that we live our lives. I mean, what are some of the practical ways in which we could apply some of these philosophies in our understanding of the nature of reality to our everyday life? Well, you know, when, when, if you are a neuroscientist and you are doing a brain scan of a subject, and the subject is having experiences, and you're scanning the brain of that person. So the, the neuroscientist will see just patterns of brain activity. But the subject itself is living an inner experience, which can be very significant. And the correspondence of that, from the neuroscientist's perspective, is just some patterns of brain activity. If idealism is correct, then the physical world around us, the entire inanimate universe, is like that brain scan. It is also the outer appearance of the entire universe's inner life. And if that is true, then everything we see around us has a meaning. It's not the end. It's not the way it simply is and you stop there. No, it's it's pointing to something in the same way that the patterns of brain activity of a person correspond to the person's inner emotions, feelings, imagination, intuition, and so on. Mm -hmm. It's an indication. It's pointing to that inner life, that brain scan. And my contention is, would be then that the entire inanimate universe, in the exact same way, is pointing um, at something beyond itself. And in that sense, it's symbolic, and it's, it's, it, it can be interpreted. And life gains a whole new meaning if you start looking upon this this way, that life is a story to be interpreted, for meaning to be derived from it. It's very different than materialism, which basically says, well, matter is just what it appears to be. That's the end of the story. It's not symbolizing anything. It's not pointing at anything. It's just the way it is. Right. And, and therefore, the only possible meaning of life is to accumulate material well, goods because yeah. matter is all there is, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, you know, it's, it's really fascinating to me. I mean, I, I, I wonder about you know, the brain being this pattern connecting machine. And I wonder a lot about, you know, how much meaning I'm giving to the events around me and I'm looking at those interpretations. And yeah, I try to identify what life is telling me, but most of the time I, I just don't get it. You know what I mean? I just, I, I, I mean, sometimes I'll get a clue of it and then only to realize it later, you know, like, like okay, this yeah. was what it was pointing at. So, I mean, surely you've heard of Carl Jung, synchronicity. 
<laughs> Certainly, I'm writing a book about him now. I, I was just writing it a half an hour ago. <laughs> okay, perfect. That's a synchronicity, right? So, I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, how, how do you classify something like that into the larger picture? Like, what is controlling these synchronicities? What is creating this? These events around me. Am I doing that, or is it something higher? Is it a different part of me, like a super consciousness, or you know, w- what is that? Depending on what you call you, right? What what your self image is, what your sense of identity is. Um, if we identify just with these personal egos, then it's not you. It's there's something out there, transpersonal, that is coordinating the events of the world, and it may not be doing this in a deliberate or premeditated way. It may be doing it in an in an instinctive way, in the same way that, according to Jung, uh, the unconscious works. Uh, the unconscious for Jung is not a rational planning agency or an, or an agent. It, it's just unfolding uh, according to certain patterns that are a priori, that are primitives. They are there before anything else, and he called it the archetype. So the archetypes are the instincts of the collective unconscious, so to say. And if idealism is correct, if what I just explained before is correct, I think it's fair to equate uh, mind at large, this transpersonal mind beyond ourselves, to equate that with Jung's uh, collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that sense, it would operate the same way. You can, you can see it manifesting itself from two different points of view. One, when you're dreaming and you have a deep archetypal dream, what you're seeing uh, is the manifestation of the, these uh, uh, archaic archetypes. And they, they sort of coordinate the imagery of your dream. And then you can uh, uh, go ahead and say, well, then waking life is sort of that as well. Because according to Jung's uh, synchronicity idea, it is the archetypes that are sort of uh, organizing the events in the physical world as well at a non-local level. Uh, we, we, at a non-local level, so to say, um, and uh, the way he positions it to say is to say that uh, we know from quantum physics, and I have been very careful about using this word because it has been so abused. But I'll, I'll be precise and rigorous. Uh, uh, according to quantum physics, at the most fundamental level of nature, nature is not deterministic. Uh, individual quantum events do not follow necessarily from certain causes. They are random. And the laws of physics begin to apply only at the statistical level. So if you, if you have many events, then at that level, statistically, patterns begin to emerge, which we call the laws of nature. But at, at an individual uh, uh, event, at that level, it's uh, apparently random. And what wow. Jung and Wolfgang Pauli postulated was that uh, well, those apparently random events are not really random. They are being determined by this non-local agency uh, that will unfold according to certain archaic patterns that he called the archetypes. And it's the same archetypes that are coordinating your dream life and even some of your impulsive behaviors, daydreaming, visions, and so forth. Hmm. Yeah. So in your book, um, The Idea of the World, you, you get into near-death experiences, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so can you talk a little bit about some of the com- commonalities of what these people are experiencing at the moment of death for them? And, um, it, you know, can we create a pattern with what they see in, after they die? I, I've never had uh, a near-death experience. Um, I've seen many reports. I think it's undeniable that there are uh, common themes, uh, the basic themes of a near-death experience uh, are shared, are common, um, but the imagery through which these themes are presented varies widely. Um, for an Indian might see Krishna, uh, uh, um, a Catholic might see Jesus, um, an atheist might see his dead grandfather. You know, you know the imagery that symbolizes the, ca- the cairn, the core of the experience vary, but I think the core, those basic themes uh, are the same. Um, I think one thing to keep in mind is that uh, if we entertain the possibility that uh, people who have an NDE are actually in some kind of realm, in some kind of mental realm, I would say, 
um, we have to keep in mind that that alternative realm does not necessarily comply uh, with the regularities of ordinary life. In other words, that realm does not need to be so seemingly objective as the physical world. It seems to be completely disconnected uh, uh, from our inner feelings, our expectations, our beliefs, and so forth. Mm. Uh, maybe an NDE realm is not like that. Maybe it does adjust itself to, to some extent, conform to the expectations of the experiencer. In other words, the experience is as much a function of whatever is out there as it is of what the experiencer brings to it. And different people bring different expectations, sure. beliefs, and so forth to the experience changing it. I think that's basically what's going on. Uh, but for me, the most interesting thing is not the NDEs themselves. It is that... Uh, there is a consistent pattern correlating um, events in which you have uh, impaired brain activity or brain function uh -huh. with an experience of an expansion of consciousness. Mm. It, this, this happens with NDEs. You know, you have a cardiac arrest. Blood is not circulating in your brain. Metabolism will stop in seconds. Mm -hmm. uh, but you also have psychedelics, which reduce brain activity and leads to a major expansion of consciousness. You have um, certain breathing techniques that cause you to sort of pass out because you get hyperoxygenation in your blood and your blood sure. vessels in your brain constrict mm -hmm. and you don't have enough oxygen in the brain and you pass out. But then you have fantastic experiences of transcendence. Uh, people with brain damage suffered during surgery or brain damage suffered in, in war, they are much more, um, they tend to have these transpersonal experiences much more than ordinary people who have not been hurt. You have this acquired uh, savant syndrome. Uh, the list goes on. And right. Once I wrote an article for Scientific American listing the whole gamut. And to me, that's the most interesting thing, that this widely different uh, phenomena which have only one thing in common, which is that they impair ordinary brain function, hmm. that they all can be associated with an experience of awareness expansion. Hmm. Yeah, I love it, man. It's almost like, you know, you're reading my mind just because that was the next thing I was going to bring up was, you know, your paper, uh, self-transcendence and the correlates with brain function impairment. Um, and I, I wanted to talk about mystical experiences and, and how they relate to, you know, and you, you just said it, I, but also with psychedelics, something that I've heard is that, um, you know, it, it, it's as if psychedelics are just removing an aspect of the veil that we've put up ourselves, you know, so it's not as if they're adding something. It's, it's, it's as if they're lifting a filter that we've ourselves created in our beliefs and our paradigms, you know, however we see the, the nature of reality. Um, so, you know, how do you think psychedelics are affecting our philosophical perspective on the nature of reality? Hmm. I can answer this at two levels. Um, one is pretty vanilla. Um, I think psychologists who study this uh, would not disagree with what I'm about to say. We don't leave reality as it, as it is, as it is out there presenting itself to us. Uh, what we live is a projected inner narrative. We tell ourselves a story about reality, which we project out uh, onto the world. And that's actually what our experience of life becomes. Yeah. Uh, that narrative is reflected back to us. So we see what we expect to see, what we tell ourselves we are seeing. We live a story, not what's really out there. So it's self-fulfilling, basically. It's self-fulfilling. And clearly, psychedelics would disrupt um, that, that mental process, that uh, you know, the default mode network, which is a, it's an area, but also a process in your brain. Uh, which has this internal narrative-making uh, thing going on. Um, psychedelics disrupt that by, by drastically reducing brain activity in the default mode uh, network. Mm -hmm. um, but if you, you can even go beyond that, because I think in a psychedelic trance, uh, what you experience goes far beyond seeing the world for what it really is. Uh, we see other worlds, uh, other realms, uh, things that cannot be... Uh, described in words because there are just no references in our culture 
that we could rely on in order to communicate that inner experience. People have to experience it themselves. And this second level, I think, is more interesting. And I think what's happening there is that uh, there is a reduction of the dissociative mechanism that characterizes life. I mean, I said a while ago to you that I think life is the image of a dissociative process that sort of splits us off from universal consciousness, at least apparently. Um, And if that's the case, then, you know, normal, ordinary brain activity is also part of that image. So if you reduce or impair brain activity, you are impairing the dissociative mechanism in some some instances. And what does it mean for dissociation to reduce or to be impaired? It means that there is an expansion of awareness. Awareness is uh, is being constricted by that dissociative process. And if you weaken that process, awareness expands, not in an evolutionarily useful way, because, you know, it doesn't help you to see a tiger on the other side of the world if you're going to get killed by, by an elephant where you're standing. <laughs> right. uh, consciousness better be very focused, very constrained, very dissociated for us to survive as an, as an organism in, in this ecosystem. Uh, but we've transcended that as a species. We're not in the African, African savanna anymore. Right. And psychedelic experiences can be at a cultural level, I think, very enlightening. Huh. Yeah, I mean... How do you think materialism relates to this? It seems like, you know, if you just sort of dose someone with a psychedelic, that they would see past this idea that everything is just material things. But, uh, you know, it, it, but at the same time, it's as if, you know, this, this self-fulfilling aspect of our brains, our, our psychology, that we see what we want to see. Right. So yes. mean, would, would a psychedelic experience change? I mean, can we even can we even hypothesize about this idea? Would it change the perspective of someone that had a bias towards a certain way of looking at the, the nature of reality? I think it can, but it's certainly not necessarily the case. In other words, it can, but it, it doesn't every time. Um, our inner narrative reasserts itself very quickly after a psychedelic experience. I would say after a strong one, your inner narrative making, the story you tell yourself, reasserts itself within 48 hours. After that time, you will look back at the psychedelic experience and tell yourself, if that's your disposition, you tell yourself, oh, you know, it's just my brain going nuts. And you will not remember anymore the key insights. They are, they, 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 you cannot hold them in memory because you can't tell yourself what you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. And if you can't tell yourself what it is that you're experiencing, you don't form memories. Memories require this sort of metacognitive link uh, uh, in order to, for you to be able to – it's the key with which you sort of go back to that drawer and recover the experience. So, and it is a very noisy channel. Psychedelic experiences have a lot of nonsense as well. Before you, you get to a point where you can say, well, that was really noses. I've learned something about the essential mm-hmm. nature of reality. Mm-hmm. Before you get there, if you ever get there – there is all kinds of nonsense there, all these skeletons in your, in your cupboard that come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is not something that, you know, you do once and then it would change everybody into an idealist. Certainly not. No, that's not how it works. It's interesting. I mean, there, there seems to be this reemergence. It's, it's almost like a psychedelic renaissance of people who are talking more about these mystical states that are generated by these these compounds so you know it's interesting to see where the world is in regards to that and where it will be because of those mystical experiences uh would you would you say the evolution of the way we look at the world has changed because of any specific things i mean look at the way technology affects the way we communicate and interact um certainly there you know there there has to be something that has affected our paradigm or worldview as a culture, as a species? I think the the mainstream worldview that our civilization holds at any one point in time is not really a function of uh, reasoning. It's not the output of a careful reasoning process based on evidence, logic, and parsimony. That's not how it works. It works more like a fashion Um, Mm. There is a certain ethos, a certain zeitgeist uh, in the culture at different points in history, and that is the key determining factor. Uh, um, 
at some point, uh, the zeitgeist was, uh, you know, a man is the center of the universe, humans are the center of the universe, uh, and God is beyond and the stars. And, uh, you know, we had this idea that human life had intrinsic meaning because we were created in the image of God. That was fashion then. Uh, late in the 19th century, the fashion was the opposite, was to put down human life as insignificant, something on the corner of the universe, we are nothing, and, and even derive some kind of morbid pleasure from that. Um, in the 20th century, these this, this fashions changed a lot, and it started with positivism in the early 20th century, and then at some point, constructivism came, or, and deconstructivism came up. So these are fashions, and they are not based only on reason, and the fashions change based on factors that I don't, well, I certainly do not understand, and I, so I can't keep track of it. I wonder if anybody does understand that. It may be influences from what Jung called the unconscious. It may be something to do with our collective consciousness as, as determined by social media, and modern means of communication. I don't know. What I can tell for sure is that uh, we today are not mostly, at least at, at, at academia, materialists because it is materialism is the best uh, mm -hmm. hypothesis, is the best worldview. That's certainly not the reason. Mm -hmm. um, people in academia today, many of them feel that to not be a materialist is a reason to be ashamed, mm -hmm. which is sort of ridiculous because one can articulate very soundly, very reasonably reasons for not being a materialist and being something instead. Um, and you said, okay, psychedelics, they're changing things now. There seems to be a new openness to it. Clearly, there is a new openings, uh, opening to it since the turn of the century. But let's not forget, there was a lot of opportunity for this back in the 60s as well. And it was much more pronounced than it is now. Mm -hmm. And we thought, you know, the world will never be the same again, you know, after the, the psychedelic explosion of the 60s. Right. And guess what? By the end of the 70s, <laughs> uh, the pendulum already swung all the way yeah. to the other side. And in the 80s, it was all about business and uh, egotism, you know. Cocaine. So I don't know how it's going to go forward. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad that there is this renaissance of psychedelic, psychedelics, um, but I, I, I'm not very optimistic for the long term, so to say. Huh. I really appreciate it, that answer. I really got a lot from that. In, in your book, um, Idea for the, of, of the World, you included a paper about the physical, physicalist worldview being a neurotic ego defense. <laughs> how how does that work? How is this a defense for the ego? Well, you have to look at history. Um, materialism has been strong in our culture, well, I would say since the 18th century with the, the Enlightenment. Um, but it has become dominating towards the end of the 19th century. And then you have to put yourself in the in the mindset of that time. You're a scientist, and you had a religious background when you were young, because that was in the early part of the 19th century, uh, and that was the ground for your perception of meaning. Let's take Nietzsche as an example, a son of a pastor. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, when he was a kid, he was even called the little pastor, because he could quote the Bible without even opening the Bible to quote from it. So religion dominated his life, and then at some point when he became an adult, uh, and more critical and could examine the, the hidden assumptions behind all that, uh, he, he turned into an atheist. And, uh, and he had a lot of difficulty finding or constructing new meaning for his life, a new source of meaning. Ultimately, he, he got to the, to the Übermensch, the, the, the Superman, uh, and he thought the meaning of life is to transcend your own limitations. Yeah, okay, he found that story. But everybody around that time was faced with this idea that your previous source of meaning, religious transcendence, was no longer applicable. And people had to find new sources of meaning. And we know from psychology um, that if uh, your existing source of meaning, meaning breaks down or you don't believe in it anymore... Uh, you would transfer all that, that, that um, how to say, that longing for meaning to other potential sources. And I think um, materialism or physicalism uh, offers abundant potential alternative sources of meaning. For instance, 
uh, we know that um, um, if you have a very good opinion of yourself, that plays the role of a source of meaning, this, this, this positive view of yourself. And scientists have that source of meaning available to them through the scientific conquests and that they participate in. Mm. Or uh, it's also a source of meaning to have the idea that uh, you participate, you're an integral part of something bigger than yourself, which will survive your presence in this planet. So even though you will die and there will be nothing left of you, uh, your presence here will survive in the form of the work you left behind. Mm -hmm. Science offers uh, that possibility as well. So uh, the psychological phenomenon here is called fluid compensation. Right. You yeah. sort of unconsciously move uh, uh, your longings for meaning to other sources. And I think materialism played that role big time uh, from the end of the 19th century onwards. Man, we're we're on the same page. That was literally my next question. I'm looking at it right now. Um, in the in the same paper, you talk about uh, the meaning maintenance model, and then you get into the expression of uh, fluid uh, compensation, and you talk about the intellectual elites, and it makes a lot of sense of 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 creating this lifelong sort of legacy that you know lives on after their death. But what is the meaning maintenance model and and fluid compensation? It, I touched on, upon it. Um, you have sources of meaning in your life. If you don't have any, then you are depressed, maybe clinically depressed. So we all have, even if we are not directly or explicitly aware of it, we all have certain sources of meaning. And what the meaning maintenance model tells you is that uh, if one of your sources of meaning is threatened, because you believe in something else, your view of the world has changed, whatever, you will automatically, meaning you're not explicitly aware of it, it's something that happens in the background, in your subconscious, so to say, you will automatically shift your attention towards other potential sources of meaning. Make no mistake, you know, while in the, maybe the 16th century, people would derive meaning from the notion that we are the center of the universe and that everything turns around us. Sure. In the 21st century, you can derive meaning from exactly the opposite by saying, you know what? We are nothing. We are completely irrelevant. We don't count for anything. There is no meaning in any of this. And because I know and I'm courageous enough to admit this, I am better than you. Because you are not mm -hmm. courageous to face the facts in the face. Mm -hmm. And that is the source of meaning for them. They just differentiated themselves from the others and acquired a positive self-image by telling themselves, you know, I face facts that others don't face. That's fluid compensation in, in, in action right there. It's fascinating. I, I love your explanations, Bernardo. I, I've really appreciated this time. We've got a little bit of time left. Um, I want to get into a paper that you wrote, a piece that you wrote on Scientific American about uh, relational quantum mechanics and their suggestion that, or your suggestion that physics may be a science of perceptions. Can you can you get into this for us a little yeah. bit? Relational quantum mechanics was proposed by an Italian physicist called Carlo Rovelli uh, back in 94, if I remember it correctly. And basically what it says, it, it bites the bullet of quantum mechanics. It acknowledges the necessary implications of quantum mechanics that everybody else is trying to tell themselves a story that, oh, no, there is something else at, at work here that's not captured by quantum mechanics. Well, Rovelli said, okay, I will assume that quantum mechanics is a complete description of the physical universe. Um, what are the implications then? And a direct implication, which has been confirmed, by the way, this year, a paper that was published this year, uh, experimentally confirmed. Back in 94, Rovelli just looked at the theory. Uh, the implication is that the physical world is always relative to the observer. Now, let's not get into the discussion of what counts as an observer, otherwise it will get too complex. Sure. Let's just pretend that observers are people like you and me looking at the world around us. So what he is saying is what he, quantum mechanics is saying, actually, is that the physical world is always relative to the observer. In other words, each, each one of us inhabits, strictly speaking, a different physical world because each one of us has a different quantum mechanical description of the world around us. 
And this has been experimentally confirmed uh, this year. Now, it opens up all kinds of difficulties uh, in terms of philosophy, because if you say that everything is relative, then uh, relative to what? You know, motion is relative, yes, but it's relative to a material observer and a material object that's moving. If you say that the entire physical world is relative, then there is nothing physical to ground the meaning of these relational uh, properties, if you know what I mean. Hmm. Um, the way around it is to just say, you know what, we are all inhabiting the same environment, but that common environment is not the physical world. That common environment is an environment of experiences, of mentation. And the physical world emerges when we look at that mental environment, interact with it, and the result of that interaction is what we call the physical world. And then, of course, I have my physical world, you have yours, because we all have different interactions with this common environment of mentation, so to say. Mm -hmm. So the physical world is relative to each observer, but that does not imply solipsism, uh, because the real world out there is not physical, it's mental. That's how I would go about it. Bernardo, what a fascinating conversation. Time flew by. I really enjoyed this a lot. I mean, yeah, we, we, we touched on everything that I could think of uh, to bring up. Is there anything that you want to mention that, that you feel that we didn't cover yet? Oh, I'm certain, I'm certain we didn't cover a lot of things, but okay. <laughs> it's almost two in the morning. I'm not sure I can uh, okay, think yeah, of it right I know now. <laughs> it's, I know it's very, very late for you. Um, you mentioned that you're working on a new book. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I used to publish a book every year. Um, the latest book, The Idea of the World, which came out in April this year, took me three years because I thought, you know, I, I'm going to preempt this line of attack that I was often subjected to, which is, well, you know what, you didn't submit your work to peer review and, and you don't have a degree in philosophy. So I took three years, published 15 papers in good peer-reviewed journals, including a couple of them in very respected journals, mm -hmm. got myself a second PhD mm -hmm. and wrote a book based on that. Mm -hmm. In the book, I sort of explain things more to the, to the average educated reader, so it's not so technical. Mm -hmm. um, but the result was that instead of one book per year, I went to one book in three years because it took a while <laughs> to do all that. Um, so now I'm trying to catch up. I, I have one book in production right now. It will come out next year. It's about the metaphysics of uh, Arthur Schopenhauer, okay. uh, which I think has been tremendously misunderstood and misrepresented in academia. So I, I'm arrogantly trying to correct that situation. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm writing right now. I mean, the book of Schopen about Schopenhauer is in production. I finished it a couple of months ago. Okay. And I'm writing a book right now about the metaphysi metaphysics of Carl Jung, the, the psychiatrist, I think, although he disclaimed being a philosopher very strongly, I think his ideas have metaphysical implications that we can derive from uh, being acquainted with his work. Indeed, I agree. Bernardo, where can people find your work? Is there a website that they can get to? Yes, uh, bernardocastrop.com. Kestrup is with a K. Uh, if, if you go there, uh, there is a top menu bar. There is everything there. There are links to all my books, videos. Uh, my academic papers, uh, one of my PhD theses uh, are there, links to all the Scientific American essays I've been publishing over the past uh, two years or so, a little more. Uh, videos, I have several videos, I have a channel on YouTube, but if you go to bernardocastrup.com, you can, you, from there you can go everywhere, and of course I have a blog on that same address as well. Very good. Ladies and gentlemen, the book is called The Idea of the World. Uh, my guest Dr. Bernardo Castrup. That's going to do it for us here at HXP. We will certainly be back for another live broadcast for you ne next week. If you're not subscribed to us on YouTube and you're listening to this on the podcast version, please get over to YouTube, search for the Human Experience Podcast. Make sure you just subscribe to us, click the bell so you get notified. If you're listening to this on the podcast version as well, get over to iTunes and leave us a review, positive or negative. It really helps us stay relevant one of the common themes that i get from people who listen to the show is that they 
they hadn't discovered our show before. So we'd like to welcome them into the family. One of the biggest compliments you can give us is by sharing this with your friends. So thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Bye.